The more mental energy and emotion that somebody has invested in something, the harder they take it when it doesn't work out. Hi, and welcome to Dreams with Deadlines, a podcast where you'll hear real stories of trials and victories in business. I'm Jenny Harold, Chief Product Officer of GTM Hub. GTM Hub is the world's most powerful platform for objectives and key results, or OKRs. In concept, OKRs are easy to understand, but challenging to execute. Until now. Check us out at gtmhub.com to learn more. Joining me today is Rob Bailey. Rob is currently a senior product manager at Alvic Networks, Inc. Previously, he was a director of product at Roadmonk and a senior product manager at NetSuite. He's got a decade of product management experience under his belt. On this episode, Rob shares his thoughts on product management from the lens of an individual contributor, manager, and leader. The dangers of cascading goals, the key to making OKRs work, and how to utilize evidence-based decision-making when you're at a pre-product stage, and more. Let's jump in. Welcome, Rob. It's really great to have you on the show. Happy to be here, Jenny. Thanks. We kind of discussed what would be interesting to chat about today, right? The first being the leadership mindset. And you've spent some time on the operational side of product management to leadership. And you've spent like 10 years of your career doing product management work. Can you talk a bit about your journey? Absolutely. So I've spent over 10 years in product management. I did it since I graduated from university, actually. And I've done different roles, some in product management as an individual contributor and some as a leader in product management. Both have their challenges. Both are interesting and dynamic roles. The individual contributor role is absolutely rewarding. And that's where I see myself now. It's my comfort zone. It's where I shine the most. Yeah. So since you've kind of seen both sides of the house now, right? Can you describe the differences between what it's like to be a senior individual contributor and what it looks like to be in a leadership role in product? Absolutely. The main difference is in people management. You can get very, very far along in product management as an individual contributor and take on a ton of product scope, owning the entire roadmap for you know a major component of the product or maybe even the entire product. And you don't have to move to a director or, or VP or CPO role to do that. If you want to manage people, that's where you need to sort of look at that other career trajectory. That was one of the things when I moved from senior product manager at NetSuite to director of product at Roadmonk was for me, my job went from 90% focusing on the product to 90% focusing on the people. And it was a vastly different job. And so it was interesting. I made that decision because I had enjoyed all of the roadmap scope that I had at NetSuite. You know, I was managing a large proportion of the product and I figured, you know, why not layer on some people management to that? It's a bit of that, but more so ultimately, if you're doing your job well as a product leader, you will have people on your team who own the scope and it's not really you who owns it, you know, at the tactical level as much as you did before. So then what were some of the things that you found yourself doing? Because I think that's a really elegant way of describing the differences in the roles. What were kind of some of the activities or the skills that you saw you needed to grow in or utilize more when you stepped into leadership? When you think about as a product manager, one of the things that everyone says is it's a job that requires 
you to have a lot of influence with no authority, right? So over your backlog, over your engineering group, who's maybe delivering things, they don't report to you, right? So you have no formal authority as a product manager. That gets, I won't say worse, that gets more exacerbated as you move up to a product leader role. And what I mean there is you're now influencing with authority, the people who have influence without authority. And then your influence without authority also needs to happen at the leadership level, right? And so you need to convince engineering leadership to resource certain projects or whatnot. You need to convince sales leadership to you know staff up in certain ways. You need to convince, right? So your influence without authority needs to operate at two different levels, one through your team, is influencing the backlog and the tactics without authority. And then you have no formal authority over the folks that need to make the decisions and staff the teams at the leadership level as well. So your influence without authority problem becomes that much harder. I can imagine. So then you'd mentioned like at the individual contributor level, we're really talking about the tactics of trying to execute against whatever the roadmap is or however you've defined what key projects need to be done, right? And then at the more senior levels, as we know, you're thinking through your strategy. So Mm -hmm. then how, at the various places that you've worked so far, did you see that product strategy defined? And what are the differences you've seen in that approach between the organizations that you've served? So it works best, in my experience, when strategy is defined utilizing the people in the product org at every level. What I mean there is for me as an individual contributor at NetSuite, for example, I had visibility into the nuts and bolts of how the product was going to work or needed to work. But then I also had visibility at a very tactical level around some of the marketing programs and sales initiatives and you know support issues that were coming in. Whereas say my boss and my boss's boss had a bit less awareness there. However, they had more awareness in terms of getting things done through the rest of the organization, the higher level business objectives. And so it was only through talking through everything at all levels, you know, having us all in the same room discussing everything and pulling everything together that we were able to arrive at the correct or what we believe to be the correct roadmap and product strategy for our group. How often was that revisited? That sounds like a lot of work to draw people together, firstly, and then secondly, to get everyone's calendar aligned. Yeah, it was done formally on a six-month cadence because the NetSuite product shipped every six months. So we had a six-month core release schedule. So we would do a roadmap presentation every six months. So we would formally align at that cadence. However, that was never really the first time we were talking about any issues or discussing the strategy. It was a very much an open dialogue and an ongoing basis. As we would get into execution on things, we would pop things up. And then as the landscape would change at the top level, we would be pulled in and have a discussion ad hoc at that point. And when I was on the other side at Roadmonk, I'll tell you a little bit more about when I was running the the, sort of the, the product group at Roadmonk. I would try to do the same thing, right? So whenever the landscape changed at the top level, introduce that to my team in a way that made sense to them and then ask them what was going on at their level, get that input so that we could formalize the correct roadmap changes and work those through the organization. How quickly did you see those changes roll through in each of the organizations respectively? 
NetSuite, six-month release cadence, two-year roadmaps. So the rate of change of the roadmap was relatively low. It would put some pretty big themes and pretty big initiatives on there, allowing for wiggle room within them. But largely, you would stick to your roadmap and make changes one year out, two years out, that kind of thing. Whereas at RoadMonk, we were moving and changing a lot quicker. And so we would put out a new roadmap anytime things changed, basically. Anytime our landscape changed, it was more ad hoc. And we would do sort of, it would release every two weeks. So we would do planning cycles on a monthly basis-ish. Okay, wow. So in order to kind of bridge what was actually happening and get everyone on the same page, you had mentioned that RoadMonk adopted OKRs. Can you talk a bit about why the organization decided to use OKRs as their approach to bridge strategy and execution? Mm -hmm. And then like, what did that look like? So when I joined RoadMonk, there were OKRs set for the year. I was happy to see that. It was great. It was a new initiative at RoadMonk. And the idea there was the organization was getting to a size where, you know, it wasn't hallway conversations to sort of determine what was going to happen, but we needed a bit more of a structured approach to ensure that we had uh, alignment across the organization. And so the way we structured it was we would set a goal at the top level. We would have somebody, a single responsible individual responsible for the goal or the objective they would be sort of responsible for running a program or a massive project, so to speak, to get their objective done. And they would need to work cross-functionally across various groups to make sure that they delivered. Each of the OKRs had one or more metrics attached to them. And so the metrics were published and updated in the monthly company town hall. The leader of the goal would sort of present the status of it and where we were and what needed to be continue to be done to progress toward the objective. It was good. It worked reasonably well. If I were to go back and do it again, a couple of things that I would do differently or sort of advocate for being done differently would be, I think I like the single responsible individual, but in some cases that single responsible individual didn't necessarily have the formal authority to make changes and make massive sort of moves where they needed to. So Maybe the responsible individual was in engineering, but in order to make the goal successful, we needed some movement on the sales side. And, you know, if that sales leader isn't necessarily aligned with that goal or that they need to do, you know, X and Y, then maybe it's not going to work. Right. So I think with this type of goal setting, what I would have loved to have seen was sort of anything that was across the entire company that the CEO maybe owns the entire objective and that each of the leaders in their group or each of the leaders of different groups creates or aligns on what are the things in my group that need to happen. And then I'm the responsible individual for those things. And we have measures around those things to have a more coordinated program where everybody's committed. The second major thing that I would have loved to have be different in that instance was I think we had too many goals. We decided to, I think it was five or six objectives for the organization, each with owners. And so you would start to see the organization being pulled in lots of different directions as we were trying to pursue five or six different things at the same time. I think we would have had more success against our objectives if we were all pulling in one or maybe two directions at the same time. Just to kind of recap, the first thing was the single individual person that was responsible for the objective. I think single responsible individual, I think 
was a good thing. The thing that was a bit awkward for me was when that single responsible individual needed, in order to make the goal successful, we actually maybe needed somebody else to be the responsible individual. And maybe we had picked the wrong individual at the outset because we thought that a lot of the the work and responsibility would lie in their group. When we got into it, it actually was sort of somebody else's group, if that makes sense. Mm. That does make sense. And then the second thing is just focusing on too many things at the same time. Mm -hmm. I will add a third thing. We defined the goals at the executive leadership level, but we didn't really translate those goals to any goals at the individual contributor level. And so you had executives trying to move these massive mountains and you had people who weren't exactly sure how what they were doing was going to help move the mountains. And you had really well-intentioned people wanting to help, but not being exactly sure how they could help. So does that mean then at Roadmonk, it was at the team level or there were just overarching goals for the whole organization? There were overarching goals for the whole organization, right? Ah. Yeah. And so one of my wishes was that we also had goals at the team level. And I'm not necessarily saying we would have had goals that were isolated to the product management group. I'm thinking in terms of product development, we would have some goals that maybe were defined by product management or defined by a combination of product management and engineering leadership and had those translated into sort of scrum team goals, essentially would have been great. I would have loved to have seen some goals translated down to the various marketing groups, sales groups and support groups as well. Just to get that alignment and just clarity around how people are contributing or in what way contributions make sense. Right. And it sort of goes back to the thing we were talking about earlier around in order to create a great company strategy, whatever we're deciding up at the leadership level absolutely needs to be informed by and bought into and sort of mapped down to the individual level. And if we talk about goal setting, I'm not a fan of the old school cascading goals. I'm more of a fan of the OKR system. In my opinion, you have to do sort of company level objectives, department level objectives, and then individual level objectives or team level objectives would be the three levels if I were to design it again that I would choose. Why are you not a fan? This is like probably a controversial question for some because we've seen organizations that, I don't know if they're fans, but they definitely deploy OKRs via Cascade. What are some of your reasons for opting more for a more collaborative, top-down, bottom-up approach, which is, I think, what you're suggesting? Okay, so cascading goals are great in theory. We're saying we have these objectives we want to achieve as a company. So we're just going to break those down and give goals to you know the next level in the tree. And then they're going to break those down and go to the next level in the tree. And they're going to break those down and go to the next level of the tree. Great. And so if everybody does their goals, then it's all going to roll up to success for the company. That's the theory behind cascading goals. And I actually liken it to, because I'm a product manager through and through, I liken it to the waterfall versus agile argument. And so you can build software by creating a massive product requirements document and translating that into a software requirements specification and hucking that over the wall to development who breaks down the work and the project manager tracks all the work and the work eventually gets done. And at the end of the day, you may or may not have 
the product that ultimately the customer needed or that you were intending to build. And you've just spent a massive amount of time and money because you committed the fallacy of thinking that we can know everything up front. So that's why Agile has become such a great and popular practice in product development is because we embrace the fact that we don't know all the answers up front and we don't know exactly how it's all going to play out. We embrace change and we actually build it into the cycle and into the process. And we say, okay, this is the rough direction that we think we are going. This is the goal. Let's start to break down the work and chop off risks you know, as aggressively as we can and define and continually redefine the work so that ultimately we hit the goal and we're empowered to make those changes to the work so that we ultimately hit the goal because we know what the goal is. Right? And there's nothing more empowering to a team than to do that, to empower them to make the decision or make a different decision to better serve the goal. And ultimately, as a business leader, that's what you want. You want your people making decisions at every level that ultimately bring you closer to your goal. And so I think it's a similar philosophy with traditional cascading goals, as you say, we're going to define everything we're going to work on or all of our goals for the quarter at the start of the quarter. And then we're going to measure them at the end and we're going to base everyone's performance on them. So you could spend two thirds of the quarter going down a direction that ultimately may not be the best way to achieve your goal, just because that's what you thought at the start of the quarter when you made the goals. And so unless you have the flexibility to change on the fly, you're not going to necessarily be growing in the correct direction as fast as you possibly can. And that's the danger with traditional cascading goals. And it's usually because it takes about you know a month to actually cascade the goals down from what I've seen and heard. It's a long, arduous, labor-intensive process to even make the goals. So changing them, you got to wait for the next cycle, basically. Whereas if you have a more nimble, flexible approach, like using OKR, you're in a better position to empower your people to make the right decisions at the right time and more directly and aggressively pursue your goals. Yeah, I can see that. Let's kind of go backwards in time a little bit to your NetSuite days. So you had mentioned that there was also a goal setting framework and NetSuite's kind of a big business. How in the world did NetSuite try to orchestrate goal setting internally? So it wasn't a full goal cascade that I just sort of ripped apart to some extent, but we did have individual level goals and we had, I would say, department level goals. So everyone individually had their goals. Our VP, for example, had some MBOs. You know, I had quarterly goals that I had set for myself and that I agreed on with my manager. That was kind of it. We, in our group, made the goals such that they had flexibility just in the way that we defined them. But that was really sort of our group's management culture that enabled that to happen because we sort of, I think, shoehorned some of the OKR philosophies into the goal framework that we were being asked to use. It sounds like you had kind of the precursor to the evolution of OKRs, which was management by objectives. And that was socialized between management and direct reports, right? Yeah, it was mostly at the leadership level, though, the VP and Ah, above levels that you would have MBOs because they would tie comp changes or bonuses to, you know, achievement of objectives. 
you're not really going to be able to do that in individual contributor roles unless it's, of course, a sales role or something where you can have variable comp based on the quota attainment and those things. But for product development, you're not going to have the bonusing structure necessarily. And it's dangerous if you try and start to put it in, right? Like if you were to say, ship this feature this quarter and you'll get a bonus, well... That says nothing about the quality of that feature. It says nothing about that feature's ability to solve the customer's problem. So it can get a bit dangerous, you know, management by objectives and, and bonusing and, and having comp tied to delivery of product for sure. Yeah, because I guess what you're saying is what really are you incentivizing then? Right, exactly. You got to be very careful what you're incentivizing. Yeah, totally. One facet that I learned from you uh, very recently is that like NetSuite was trying to create a solution for organizations that wanted to set goals, right? And so you did a lot of research and to some extent created some solutions. Can you talk about what you learned in your research as you were trying to build out solutions for companies that wanted to set goals at NetSuite? Like what were some of the things that you found out? So I was working on the Sweet People team, and Sweet People is the newest uh, major module in NetSuite for human capital management, i.e. HR. And so I did a bunch of research while I worked there as a product manager on how HR software can and should work and support you know, HR best practices. What I found was there's sort of two camps in the HR world, there's the by the book, old school HR groups who are really focused on compliance. And you think of them as like, this is the policy thou shalt adhere to the policy. And that's how they view their job as I am the person who makes the policy and ensures that employees comply with the policy. And then you have the newer style of thinking in HR, which is I am here to empower the organization as best I can. I'm here to make sure that everyone has the ability to do their best work when they come to work. And so that's much more of a empowering people-oriented, performance-oriented culture. And so... As a vendor in the HR space, I would actually encounter both sides of the coin. You'd have some organizations and you would think your gut feel, your gut reaction would say, you know, modern tech companies, they're probably all on that sort of new age, you know, empower the organization way of thinking. That's not necessarily the case. I've encountered plenty of progressive tech companies with the old way of thinking in their HR groups. And it's up to management, really, to drive the empowerment culture. And so as a vendor trying to design HR software, you kind of have to pick who you're going to design it for. You're going to design it for, I need a quarterly performance evaluation that has you know X, Y, and Z goals on it that we set at the start of the quarter. Or do you need something more flexible, like GTM Hub software, to do OKRs and goal setting on an ongoing basis and link them to work that's actually getting done? So I'm a big proponent, if you can't tell, of, of some of the stuff that you're doing over there at GTM Hub. Thanks for that. I appreciate that. <laughs> You've experienced a lot. You've defined like the different customer types specific for goal setting, which I find fascinating. And you've kind of touched on this a bit. What would be some key recommendations you would share with our listeners who use OKRs to help them deploy and manage the stuff 
more effectively. That's a hard thing. I mean, the concept themselves is deceptively simple. Like you've described it really well. Actually trying to get this going seems to be the challenging bit. What would you recommend? The knee-jerk reaction is to say, we're doing OKRs. Everyone shall make their OKRs and have them ready to go by the start of the quarter. We'll set the quarterly OKRs. Everyone will review those with their managers. It's a very sort of, this is the process and policy. You shall follow the process and policy sort of method of deploying OKRs. I think that leads to some failure a lot of the time especially if folks aren't used to using them, you're basically throwing them in the deep end right away. And you're saying, oh, well, you want to achieve Objective X. Well, what are the measurables to achieve Objective X? And in some cases, groups may not even be measuring the things or may not be able to measure the things that they would need to measure in order to say, I did well on this or not well on this, this OKR. And so you're sort of, in a lot of cases, getting folks into a tough situation where they may define OKRs that they can measure and not necessarily OKRs that are the ones that they actually need to be pursuing, if that makes sense. And so I would almost take an approach, and I would love to hear about if anybody has taken this approach, but one of the things I might do is say, this is a tool available to you and have the managers start to pick it up organically sort of goes to my earlier point about you you don't need six or seven OKRs. You need probably one, maybe two for your group, right? And so if you can sort of empower your team to define the number one, what is the number one thing and how will we know if that's successful? And if you just have that conversation and maybe use some OKR software to record the results of that conversation, it can be as lightweight as at the end of the quarter, looking back and saying, we said that this was important at the start of the quarter. How important is it still now? How did we do on these key results? And have it be safe to fail, right? If you didn't hit a key result, it may not be because your people didn't work hard or really try. It could be because something happened in the middle of the quarter and we learned something and we changed. Well, that's completely fine. Right. And then if we wrap the OKR process around with a continuous improvement mindset and say, okay, well, if we didn't achieve the result, then what did we learn and how can we adjust for next time? That's the key to making it work. Otherwise, it's just another way to phrase your goals. Unless you can wrap it around one concept of safety and failure and two, an attitude of continuous learning and continuous improvement. I don't think it's going to be any more successful than any goal-setting strategy you've adopted before. It would just basically amount to a different way of stating the goal. I think that's a lot of really good points. And then something that I just want to pick up on or highlight on is the ability to define OKRs effectively one, right? But then ultimately having access to that data and being able to connect and update other people relative to the information that's being fed in. Kind of fast forwarding to something we wanted to touch on in this conversation. I remember us discussing this a bit. What's your experience been like trying to get a data-driven culture established? One of the biggest challenges in getting a data-driven culture established is access to data, especially when it comes to, I'm going to sort of dive into product teams or product development groups. If your product isn't spitting out 
data and having it transformed into a way that you can sort of report on it as it relates to customer outcomes or business objectives, then you're kind of flying blind. And so step one, typically, is to set up some data infrastructure. Once you've decided that you want to go and be more data-driven, deciding to be more data-driven, I haven't really encountered much resistance to that at a leadership level, right? So, you know, if you were to go to your VP and say, I want to be more data-driven and make more evidence-based decisions about the product, they would not probably tell you no, right? They would absolutely, in most cases that I've experienced, encourage you to go down that route. The question is how. It comes down to, okay, I want to measure X. Well, if I need to jump through three different departments and buy a tool and implement a tool to get access to that piece of information or that piece of data or get that metric going, that's probably not going to be a thing that I do. I'm probably just going to build the feature as I was going to do before and ship it. So I think the data-driven culture needs to to sort of happen across the organization. Start from the top. I know that's a cliche, but kind of does. And I think one of the things that folks have trouble with, with even starting a data-driven culture from the top is when the leadership group says, okay, now we're making all data-driven decisions. And, you know, the individual contributors go, yeah, right, we have no data. So I think it's got to be a program in itself to get a data-driven culture set up and data infrastructure. One of the things that I've seen in products especially is the product will start to just dump data into a data lake. And that's fine. That's the starting point. But what folks will often do, like the conclusion that you will hear is, well, yeah, I mean, we're tracking that. So why can't you report on it? Well, there's a whole bunch of translation that needs to happen. Just because we know that some user did event X doesn't mean that we can make sense of that data in any way. doesn't mean that our product teams have the tools to analyze that data. It needs to get transformed. It needs to get housed somewhere. There's a whole host of tooling and data analysis that even needs to happen to translate it into something that relates to business outcomes. So it's been my experience that you would often run into an answer of, yeah, we're tracking that. That information is being dumped to a log file somewhere. Okay, well, there's a lot that goes between dumping a piece of data to a log file and being able to make a business decision off of aggregate user data. In terms of data-driven culture, I think that can start from the bottom in some cases. So, for example, let's say as a product manager, in some cases before, there's been certain product decisions that have been imposed from the top down. And one of the things you can do as a PM is gather some information. It doesn't necessarily have to be in the form of X percent of users did this action and Y percent did this other action. It can be qualitative, right? And so we talk about data-driven. I usually like to reframe that a little bit and talk about evidence-based decision-making, right? So I don't need a statistical analysis to necessarily make a decision. I could use a series of qualitative observations and call that evidence, and that's better than nothing. And so while you're on your way to making decisions off of aggregate data, absolutely an interim point can be evidence-driven qualitative. And 
In fact, in some cases, you won't even be able to get aggregate data to make some decisions. Some of them will just have to be, I have this evidence that I've gathered up and now we need to move. The time it takes in a lot of cases to get the data you need to make an informed decision off of statistical sample size that's relevant enough is going to take too long for the scope of the decision you need to make. And so you sometimes just need to use the evidence you have and move. But presenting the decision with evidence is step one in my mind to a data-driven culture. Well put. So then let's say you're kind of new at trying to establish like this evidence-based and hopefully at some point data-driven culture. When you were drafting and creating OKRs at Roadbunk, was that data accessible to everybody? Well, I think that's part of the reason why we didn't translate the OKRs down to team level is because we were able to report our SAS metrics and we report our SAS metrics for the board meetings and those types of things, right? And so those things are measurable and, and are measured. And so it's pretty easy to put an objective around improving a metric that we already measure. You don't need to do any new instrumentation to measure it. And then as we cascaded that down, it was, okay, well, to achieve this, we need to execute project X or we need to build feature Y. And so those were definitely, you know, binary in terms of yes or no, we achieved them. And, you know, yes or no, we achieved them on the time frame that we had set out to achieve them on. But my issue with those types of success definitions are I can ship a feature with very low quality and still call it shipped. Not that I would, but that's entirely possible. It's also possible to ship a feature that ultimately doesn't solve the customer's problem that the feature was intended to solve when it was conceived at the leadership level. It's very easy to fall into those traps. You know, you would technically succeed on your metric. And if you don't have that good culture of these goals are a guiding thing, but not necessarily the law, right? And we can do something different or we ultimately need to keep in mind what's right for the business and what's right for the customer. And we need to continually update what our goals and objectives are to match that. If you don't have that mindset in, ingrained, it's not going to work. Yeah, so you touch on an interesting point, right? Where you definitely need access and everyone should have access to data that's clean, that's transformed in a way that helps define goals and in the context of the business objectives, of course, but also in service of the customer. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah, absolutely. So then let's fast forward to success because presumably you've seen successes with your teams. Like Roadmonk is doing really well. Obviously, NetSuite is a behemoth in the market. As you've been working with and supporting these teams, how did you all define success? And then when you experience them, can you give us some stories of what happened and how did you celebrate? Even in the absence of measuring the success with a metric, there is the most successful teams that I've been on, even in the absence of measuring success with a single or multiple metrics, is an attitude of focus on the customer, focus on success of the business, and focus on continuous improvement. With those focuses, attitudes being celebrated by management being celebrated within the team and being encouraged and fostered that ultimately the product, whatever you put out the door has a much higher likelihood of market success. In my experience, if you have measures to understand how well your product is doing, that's even better because then you can rally the team around those numbers. I mean, ultimately the measure is 
if it's defined well, how successful the product is. Now you have a scoreboard, but even in the absence of your scoreboard, the fundamental attitudes need to be there to have product success. Do you mind sharing a story of where you've experienced mm-hmm. such success with kind of that foundation as you've described? Sure. With or without uh, measure. Let's go with both. Okay. At NetSuite, we were in a situation where for two years, we were building a product and incubating it internally that had no customers yet. It was pre-launch. And so you don't have usage data. You don't have revenue. You don't have you know churn metrics. You don't have retention. You do not have a lot of the traditional measures or metrics of product success that you would. You have to sort of incubate this product and know that it's going to be successful when you launch it or have somewhat high confidence it's going to be successful when you launch it. So you're looking for other indicators that it's going to be great. And so really in that situation, that's sort of what I was talking about, about a a culture that's really focused on continuous improvement, on doing what's best for the customer and for the business. And so from that perspective, we really focused on getting the user experience and the design sort of right, I would say. And so we found ways to test and validate the experience we were planning on delivering to the customer base and use that sort of as our barometer for success. So we would involve as many folks in the industry as we could. We were developing in a lot of cases features for the general employee base. And so we would test those on. That's easy. It's easy to find somebody who's an employee. It's harder to find somebody who's an HR professional, right? But we did, and we've vetted sort of the experience and the design philosophy and the requirements, so to speak, on them. And so we knew we had pretty high confidence that the stuff we were going to launch with was going to be successful in the market. And as soon as we started to have customers, we started to get some of those other traditional indicators in to understand how successful we were being. And because we had built a culture of continuous learning and continuous improvement, as we started to get those signals in, we absorbed them and and embraced them and made the changes that we needed to in order to have continued success with the product. At Roadmonk, I mean, we had all of our SaaS metrics set up. We had a customer base that was using the product actively, you know, we had our churn rates, we had our growth rates, we knew what we were doing, or we knew what the product was doing in market. And so we actually used those in a lot of cases to drive the product roadmap. If we needed to focus on churn and retention for a bit, then we would complement with some qualitative assessment as to why we were losing you know, certain customers. We would segment that, we would capture some statistics on churn reasons and action off of that. So it was a lot more evidence-based and and data-driven there in terms of making product improvements. So you sort of see two ends of the spectrum, but again, focus on continuous improvement, focus on what's doing the best for the customer and focus on continuous learning in both cases. And so that's ultimately the foundations in my mind of product success. Thank you for sharing that. One of the challenges in product management is keeping up motivation with the teams. <laughs> Things don't always work out the way we thought mm-hmm. or something that we shipped didn't actually perform as well as we had expected. What are some things that you have experienced or done to help yourself and your teams continue to stay motivated in pursuit of supporting the customer, the business, as well as continually learning and taking in those learnings and improving? It's been my experience that the more 
mental energy and emotion that somebody has invested in something, the harder they take it when it doesn't work out. So if we're talking about trying something, seeing if it works or seeing how well it's working and then adjusting, there's sort of two things. One, try and reduce the amount of investment you make before you understand whether it's working or not. So if you've made a quarter long investment of an entire team and then you find out it's not going to work or it's not working, that team's going to take it really hard because they just invested a whole lot of energy. If you design a test that they can build out in a week and you frame it as we're going to see if this works, then everyone's really excited to know whether it worked or not. And if it didn't work, they're really excited to brainstorm the next thing. And so two of the keys, one, don't invest too much in something that you're not certain about. And then two, design something that will fail fast and that you can learn from and then frame it that way for the team. And saying, we're building this to see, and if it works, we're going to continue in this direction. If it doesn't work, we're going to have to figure out the next way. And then three, I would actually say, involve the team in the decision-making process. Too often I see product managers come in and say, we're doing this. And engineering says, great, cool. I will go build that thing that you're asking me to build. If you don't deliver the context as to why we're building it, then you know if it is an experiment and you think it might not work, if and when it doesn't work out, your team's going to look at you and go, why did you ask us to build this thing that didn't work? Like, aren't you supposed to know what's going to work and what's not going to work? And that's not necessarily the case all the time. Like, If you're trying to use the team to build something of an experiment and you want to learn from it, then that team needs to be sort of invested in, in the fact that they're building an experiment and they need to know that. They'll make different decisions as they go. And I've actually seen, as soon as you sort of involve the team in the experiment design, you get great ideas from the team that you didn't necessarily even think of yourself. And that's really, really powerful and really empowering for the group as well. So really, it's like a few things where don't invest too much time in any particular thing because you could just wear people out. And then the other thing I think you're hoping our listeners realize is buy-in super important because there's the sense of ownership and then a pride of ownership and creativity gets spawned when people are involved. Yep, right? absolutely. So we're going to end today with advice. I mean, you've shared so many really great stories and kind of notes based on your experience of how to approach product, what strategy might look like, how to set goals how not to set goals. If you could share one piece of advice out there for our listeners, all of us are trying to pursue a dream of, with a deadline, if you will, in our businesses. What would that be? The number one thing. So if we're talking about to folks who lead the business, so if I'm talking to, you were saying advice for folks who are, want to achieve the success in their business. If you're at the top, one of the keys is focus, I would say. If you start off with five or six disparate objectives, your organization is going to feel that at every level. If you can say, this is our one thing or these are our two things, that will really galvanize the organization. So that would be my number one piece of advice is focus. A lot of leaders fall into the trap of, oh, well, you know, we have to do this and we have to do this and we have to do this and we have to do this. We can't possibly just pick one. You know, I'll just staff up more people or more departments to do the other things, right? So I'll have the existing group focus on one and then I'll, you know, spin up another group to focus on two. 
And then three more groups that focus on three, four, five, and six, right? Imagine what could happen if you took all of those six groups and instead of focusing them on six things, focus them on two things. Imagine how much faster you could get to objective one and objective two. And so my challenge to folks trying to lead anything is to reduce what you're asking for in terms of objectives to achieve from your organization. Slim it down. Prioritize. Product managers have to do this all the time. We always have to produce the stack rank. That's your backlog. What's the number one next thing? And you can only choose one. Go through that exercise yourself. You'd be surprised at what you can live without and who you can redeploy on the things that really matter. I think that's great advice. Thanks again, Rob. It's been really great having you on the show. I've really enjoyed talking to you today. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that's it for this episode of Dreams with Deadlines. Thanks for listening. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe and share. Show notes can be found on gtmhub.com slash radio. If you want to learn more about our product and services, head out to gtmhub.com. If you have questions that you'd like answered on the show, shoot us an email at radio at gtmhub.com. Tune in next time. <laughs>